and welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. I'm Inga Story, and with me is Kieran Swan. In this episode, we'll be talking to John Goodwilly. John is a longtime political activist who has been involved in a number of progressive parties and organisations. He was a member of Labour in the 1960s and belonged to the Young Socialists, Socialist Labour Action Group and subsequent Socialist Labour Alliance. He was involved with the Socialist Workers' Movement in the 1970s and joined the Socialist Labour Party when the SWM merged with that party as a tendency and remained on the National Executive until the SLP's dissolution. John was on the editorial board of Gralton magazine. He has also participated in a number of campaign groups, including the Dublin Clean Seas Group, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, uh, on the executive of which John served in various roles, and the National Lesbian and Gay Federation. Since 1990, he has been a member of the Green Party and was the party's candidate in Dublin South Central for Dáil and local elections through the 1990s. He has been involved in policy formation and served as Secretary of the Green Party's Policy Council. So we discussed the history of Irish left organisations since the 1960s and John's own political trajectory, from Labour in the 1960s through organisations seeking to form a party of the left. We also discussed Scralton magazine, uh, John's political activity in the 1980s and in the Greens since 1990. For Scralton magazine, John created a family tree of the left diagram which provided an overview of the splits, merges and relationships between organisations on the Irish left. It was an online copy of this, which we'll include in the show notes, which inspired the creation of the timeline of the Irish left on our own website. John's diagram g- gave us a starting basis for it, and we are indebted to John both for that and for subsequent suggestions and corrections to the initial version. If you haven't seen that, you'll find it on the Irish Left Archive website. The Irish Left Archive is available at leftarchive.ie. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website. Uh, send us an email to contact at leftarchive.e or find us on Twitter at IE Left Archive. So thanks to John for taking the time to talk to us and thank you for listening. John, first, uh, thank you very much for talking to us today. Um, so we, we always kind of open with this question, but is there a particular event or campaign or organisation um, that first brought you into political activity? Um, well, it wasn't so much. Yes, I mean, it's in terms that there was an event in that uh, my first sort of real political activity, I suppose, was in the Labour Party. And the event that precipitated me into the Labour Party was when the Labour Party was joined by the National Progressive Democrats, that's Dr. Noel Brown and Jack McQuillan, mm-hmm. in um, 1964, it must have been. I'd been sort of, I had socialist ideas. I was in the Fabian Society in Trinity. Um, the Fabian Society is now called Socialist Society, and it always wanted to be called the Socialist Society, but the college board objected to the term socialist. So Fabian Society <laughs> was, was the, the, the moniker that it uh, adopted. Mm. Um, and I'd been hanging around, and I hadn't got, a clear idea in terms of Irish politics what I wanted to do. Um, I had visited the Labour Party office. Uh, I even visited the Fianna Fáil Party office. Now, this will sound pretty incredible to modern ears, but at that time, if you walked into the party office, you talked to the general secretary because there was nobody there other, apart from a typist or something, there was nobody else there apart from the general secretary. Anyway, uh, the General Secretary of 
beautiful didn't didn't um, impress me a great deal. He gave me a uh, a history of Fianafol called Fianafol and Hied Trevesha. I, I don't think they've managed to produce an Andorra Trevesha yet. Um, uh, but he admitted that they have no policy documents. I don't think they even had a, a had general election manifestos at that time. Uh, the Labour Party wasn't much more progressive. Senator Molly Davidson was the um, secretary of the Labour Party. And she recommended the book, which uh, was her sort of socialist Bible, which was Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy. Now, if anybody hasn't, I, I, did, I did read it. Uh, it's a it's a vision of what I could call a sort of bureaucratic, gerontocratic syndicalism. Uh, a very, very strange mixture. But anyway, uh, that didn't particularly impress me. But I was hanging around the Labour Party and the Labour Party was beginning, beginning to make noises about uh, actually using the word socialism. And then you had the had joining, had, as I was saying, the National Progressive Democrats joining. I had never contemplated joining the NPDs. I think, I'm not even sure that they had an office, um, but they certainly weren't much of an organization and two TDs wasn't terribly impressive. Though everybody had a great deal of respect for Noel Brown, but, but um, I don't think, um, there didn't seem to be a party there, but once they were in the Labour Party, I thought that this was more, this gave much more prospect of something going ahead. And um, there was a university's branch of the Labour Party started, which was a joint branch between UCD and Trinity, which I was in. Uh, it was actually open to the College of Technology, what is now DIT, or sorry, was DIT until the, uh, last year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it was open to them, but I remember there was one fellow from either Kevin Street or Bolton Street, uh, and I think that was as far as it got. Anyway, I joined the university's branch, so that was my, my introduction to, to, to politics. And did you find yourself campaigning, or was there a campaigning aspect to this? We got involved in the general election. There was a general election campaign in 1965. Um, as to what we did before the election, um, I, I think we just held meetings, I think. Uh, we produced a paper, a magazine called Comment. Oh, yeah. uh, and I became the editor of it. Uh, it was a duplicated paper. Um, duplicated, of course, was the predecessor of printing. Yeah. Uh, you had to type up a stencil and run it off. And after about 2,000 copies, uh, the stencil began to break up. So that was the, the print, that was the limit. But there was no other way of printing anything except by going to a commercial printing printing house. Mm. Anyway, uh, I was I was the editor of Comment. I uh, ended up as uh, I was I think I was treasurer and then vice chair of the university's branch. And you know we 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 you know we be, be represented at the party conference, and that was about it. Um, other than election activities, the general election of 1965. Um, the majority of the branch was in UCD and uh, worked for Dr. John O'Donovan. Mm -hmm. O'Donovan was a former Fine Gael junior minister 
who was a lecturer in UCD, and uh, he was the candidate in, I think it was called Dublin Southwest at the time. It's essentially what is now Dublin South Central. Mm. Um, and I worked there to considerable extent to sort of get to know people better um, because it was a very, UCD was in the process of moving out to Belfield. It hadn't all gone to Belfield, but it, you didn't sort of meet people other than at meetings. Mm. Uh, a, lo- a lot of Trinity people went off to work for Michael O'Leary, who was the, uh, you might as well say, the left-wing hope in the Labour Party. Michael O'Leary was a left-winger in those days. Yeah, the rising star. Um, uh, he was work- standing in, I think it was Dublin North Central, which is now essentially Dublin Central. Mm. So anyway, th- that was my introduction to electioneering and largely self-taught because um, constituency organisation, there were people there in fact, the um, in fact, one of them, I should say that at that th- there were actually three candidates running for the Labour Party in that constituency, apart from Dr. John O'Donovan. There was Dr. John O'Connell, who everybody will have heard of. Yeah. And there was also a fellow called Patrick Cochran, who was the old style Labour Party, uh, you know, the what 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 had survived over the years. Mm. But there really wasn't uh, a great deal of education as to how do you canvas or anything like that. We just sort of taught ourselves. And O'Connell got elected in the end. Right. So one of the three got in. Three that, was, that, was, that was a substantial advance for the Labour Party at that, at that election. Mm. So it, it sort of acquired a Dublin base, which it had hardly ever had before. I think going into that election, only Michael Mullen was the only Labour Party deputy in Dublin, except of course for Noel Brown, who had just joined. I'd been intending to go to library school in UCD, uh, but that didn't work out. So what I did was I took a job in the University of Hull as a senior library assistant, which was a job that was open to people who were graduates, but not qualified librarians. Mm -hmm. And I was in Hull for nine months. So I was uh, outside the Labour Party uh, activity at that time. And in Hull, I started to attend meetings of the International Socialists. Um, I should, to go back a bit, explain why I'd got interested in them. Mm. Uh, in the university's branch of the Labour Party, we had formed something called the Irish Association of Labour Student Organisations. Okay. And that involved the university's branch of the Labour Party. Uh, the Labour Party also had a branch in UCC. And there was the Queen's University Labour Group. And the Fabian Society in Trinity was involved as well, even though that was sort of non, not all, all shades of socialism. Mm-hmm. And in, I also, as it, as it was abbreviated, we had weekend schools. I remember one in Trinity, there was one in Cork. I think there must have been one in Belfast because I was introduced to the ideas of the international socialists in, and in particular, very, very, so the, the core idea, which was the theory of state capitalism, that Russia and the mm. countries of Eastern Europe were, were state capitalist rather than any variety of socialist or mm-hmm. deformed worker state or degenerated worker state. And I, to the best of my memory, I was introduced to that by Tony Cliff himself, who was the intellectual leader of the international socialists. Yeah. And Tony Cliff was he, he, he had grown up in Palestine mm. under the British mandate. And 
he had he was in the United Kingdom, but he had never been able to get British citizenship. And the result of it was that he wasn't able to leave the United Kingdom because he was afraid of not getting back in again. <laughs> so Belfast is the only place that I could have been at a meeting addressed by him. So I think I must have been <laughs> there. Anyway, I was attracted to the, the theory of state capitalism because it sort of solved uh, a problem of socialism being identified with uh, the Eastern Europe, the regime which had been Stalinist, even if it had been partly de-Stalinized. Mm. And the international socialists, uh, I'm not sure whether it was on their theoretical journal, International Socialism, or whether it was in Socialist Worker, which was their weekly paper, they had as the banner headline, neither Washington nor Moscow, but international socialism. So that sort of attracted me uh, to the idea that you could have socialism that wasn't, uh, that, that was in a, sorry, an, almost a neutral position between yeah. Washington and Moscow. So when I was in Hull and discovered that um, there was a branch of the International Socialists there, I went along to it. I think they had a monthly open meeting. They may have had a, a closed meeting as well, which uh, I never got to. Maybe uh, I didn't, uh, maybe it was difficult to get to, or maybe it, I wasn't invited to it, or maybe their membership was so uh, loose at that time that they didn't really have an organized membership. Mm. I mean, the open meetings where they did, I think, discuss things that had happened, you know, at some meeting going on in London or something. So, so um, it wasn't just a recruitment meeting. It was, it was a full discussion. Mm. So that's, that was my, the extent to which I uh, got involved in political acti activity while I was there. And did you find it a different sort of party, the IS, as against the Labour Party? I mean, oh, it was it, it was quite different because it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't trying to be a party at that stage. Right. Uh, the 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 name Socialist Workers Party only came about at a later date. Mm. I suppose you could say it was a discussion group and propaganda group. Right. Um, but there was no idea of contesting elections or really intervening in anything. I think perhaps if there was a, 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 a industrial dispute going on in the area, that might be discussed. Mm. But um, it wasn't. It wasn't setting itself up as an alternative party, and indeed, maybe some of them were were actually members of the Labour Party. I don't know. Okay. I, don't, I don't remember yeah. that. I, I I seem to remember that that they did have members in the Labour Party. I remember John Palmer. Mm became a distinguished journalist. Mm. Uh, he was, I remember seeing him on the television speaking to a Labour Party conference and it might have not, have not have been as late as 1968, but, yeah. um, you know, they didn't, they hadn't brought people, he may have not been a member of the Labour Party any longer, but I don't think that they had had a deliberate policy of, of coming out of the Labour Party, that just some of them happened to be, that was an area of work that they might get involved in. Yeah. Okay. And then did you go back to, when you went back to Ireland? Did yeah. You... When I went back to Ireland, it was actually to Belfast. Because, uh, as I, I got onto the li library course there, which mm. I couldn't have gone to in the first instance because they needed you to have actually worked in a library, which I hadn't. <laughs> um, 
sensible idea that you you know <laughs> you shouldn't take on people who have no idea what happens behind the scenes in the library. Yeah. Um, anyway, I went to Belfast to do the library course, and there I was in the Queen's University Labour Group, and that was just before everything started to happen. Mm. I remember hearing uh, a loud bang and uh, discovering the next day that it was a, uh, that somebody had carried out an explosion on, oh, I can't remember what, what was exploded, but it was some military installation, I think, in, in South Belfast. I, I can't nice. remember now exactly what it was. And that was the year that there was the, the banning of the Republican clubs by, the, uh, by William Craig, who was the Minister of Home Affairs. Mm. The Republican clubs were the northern equivalent of Sinn Féin. Uh, this was just before the split in Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin itself had been banned a long time, and they had started up the Republican clubs as a sort of operating in disguise yeah. method. Yeah. And when William Craig banned the Republican clubs, I remember there was a march and there was a sort of, we all engaged in the mass protest of actually joining the Queen's University Republican Club. So <laughs> that was the only time I, I, I was literally a member of an illegal organization. <laughs> that was, um, and there was a march which involved, I mean, the campaign involved even the chairman of the Queen's University Conservative, was it Conservative Group or Unionist Group? I can't remember now. But anyway, the people who came together in that were very much involved, you know, the, those who were still there were very much in, involved in people's democracy when that came along, mm. um, when that was formed in the next year. But it was the sort of precursor to people's democracy, but mm. I was gone by that point. <laughs> so then you moved south. Then yeah. I moved back to Dublin, and I got involved in the Labour Party in Bray, which I was brought up in Bray. Mm. Uh, and we had, we actually had... the the Labour Party organisation in Bray had expanded to the point where it divided into four branches, which came together in a, an, an area council. Mm. Uh, and the four branches were, there were three wards for Bray Urban District Council, and then there was a Bray Rural branch for the built-up area outside the town boundary, which was out of date as usual. And um, I got involved in that, and the... Area Council, uh, we had uh, sort of public meetings and public meetings and open meetings. It was not sort of the nitty gritty of organising which went on in the branches. But the Area Council had its representative on the Constituency Council as well as the branches being represented on the Constituency Council. So I got involved in that. I was, I think I was, uh, I was the branch representative on, on Constituency Council for some time. Hmm. Uh, and I was secretary, was I secretary? Yes, I was secretary of the area council. Um, and we had, in fact, three offices. We had the area council had four officers and we had sort of three, three of them were on the left. Uh, okay. And that meant that we could have sort of fairly, well, we could adopt a fairly, fairly left-wing line. I remember we did have Noel Brown as a, as a speaker once. We had somebody from the National Land League as a speaker, which... Mm. He was actually, uh, the National Land League was a body that existed at that time. Um, the Dan McCarthy was the leader of it, and he was actually a Labour Party councillor, I think, in Westmeath. Okay. Anyway, we'd, we'd have the sort of left-leaning public meetings, I suppose you could say. Hmm. And that went on until after the coalition decision, which um, when... 
we were all booted out uh, by right. the, the right wing mob mobilizing its forces to come to the AGM. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself there because I was also with the Young Socialists. Oh, simultaneously. Simultaneously, yes. Yeah. Uh, the Young Socialists had been formed in Dublin. Uh, there had been a Young Labour League in Dublin, which I think was formed while I was away. Mm. And I don't think it got very far. There were one or two people from that uh, ended up in the Young Socialists. Mm. The Young Socialists were formed as much as anything under the in influence of the LWR, the League for Workers' Republic. Mm. Now, this was, this, the LWR had recently been set up at that time. It was a breakaway from the Irish Workers' Group, which had been the main Trotskyist organization, but mm. had probably got most of its members in England. The, I mean, I'd been in contact with I, at these people, for example, you know, Jerry Lawless, who was effectively the leader of the Irish Workers Group, right. would turn up at a, meet, at a conference held by IALSO in Ireland. So somebody had told him, you know, there were a couple of people who obviously were in contact or were actually mm -hmm. members of the Irish Workers Group without um, necessarily, you know, you didn't know about it unless you were right. into, the, into the conclave. Yeah. Um, what you'd see, you know, I'd, I'd get the, the, the monthly paper, the Irish Militant and so on. So mm. I was familiar with that talk. And then the League for Workers' Republic was a more hardline Trotskyist breakaway, um, Irish-based. Uh, and when the LWR was formed, the Irish Workers' Group sort of melted away, partly because they got involved, their members in Belfast got involved in the, in the people's democracy. Uh, okay. There were people in Dublin as well. Uh, Rainer Isaac or D.R. O'Connell Isaac, as mm. he was as, he, was, he had a thing called the Plough Book Service, which mm. uh, was a book service uh, which had been, he'd sort of been set up to, to run sort of on behalf mm. of his brand of Trotskyism, which at that time was the United Secretariat of the Fourth International. It's, there had been, there were several Fourth Internationals by that stage, and there are probably even more at the present day. It mm. uh, kept up with all the, all the splits and mergers. Mm. Um, but anyway, the Plough Book Service had a premises in a uh, basement, excuse me, in, in North, Great, North Great Georgia Street, I think it was. Right. Or somewhere around there. And um, uh, the young socialists met in in the Plough Book Service room, so it was it was open to all shades of opinion. It was deliberately meant, although the LWR was the sort of the main influence, it was deliberately open to everybody to get involved. And I went to meetings. I went to their meetings for a while. Then things were sort of moving up. I set up a, a, a Bray Young Socialists, but it never really got off the ground because I'm not a good organiser. We had, you know, one person would come to one meeting and another person to another meeting. And we got somebody kindly made us a banner and we marched in the Dunleary May Day Parade. Mm. That was about as much far as the Bray Young Socialists ever got. My name was duly, dutifully published in the issues of the Young Socialist in case anybody would want to make contact, but they never did. <laughs> Um, but I kept in contact with the Young Socialists by virtue of the fact that I helped to produce their paper, which again, it duplicated material. So I was one of the few people that was able to type because in those pre-computer days, very few, few people 
were able to use a keyboard. Mm, uh, I've not a, I've never been a touch typist, but I could produce something that looked reasonably okay. <laughs> um, so that was my, you know, uh, at that point I, I had, I was no longer sort of attending regular meetings of the Young Socialists, but I was in, still in touch with them through, <laughs> through working for the, for the paper. And the Young Socialists were considered as a national organization, but in fact, there was no national structure. The Dublin Young Socialists ran what ran the, the, the magazine, mm. and um, there were groups through, scattered through the rest of the country, which kept in, cut, kept in touch with each other, uh, but wouldn't have, wouldn't have had, it may have been a, an occasional conference, but there wasn't a sort of national structure or national executive or anything like that. Right, okay. This sort of leads up to the 1969 general election. Right. And that was the one in which the Labour Party increased its vote substantially, but lost a couple of seats, mm-hmm. which panicked the leadership of the Labour Party into thinking, oh, the 70s will be socialist, didn't really work. Right. And that was when they, began, they went over to the idea of being involved in coalition because they had been very much opposed to coalition, at least nominally, during that period. So they began thinking there was one other thing that should be said about the move towards coalition. And that was um, when everything started in the north Mm. and you had the arms trial. Well, before the arms trial, you had the actual sacking of, was it? Yes, Hockey was sacked and Blaney resigned, if I remember rightly. Yeah. Um, And that persuaded a lot of people in the the Labour Party that really being a full could not be trusted. The whole strategy of, of the 70s would be socialist would be, was to drive Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael together and then the Labour Party would be the opposition and would mm. rise increased support as a result. Mm. But they became convinced that uh, this Fianna Fáil could not be trusted and therefore that uh, you had to actually be talking in terms of coalition. And that had a lot to do with moving the Labour Party into a coalition, coalitionist position so it was clear that the Labour Party was moving towards coalition and uh, we formed a thing called the Socialist Labour Action Group, hmm. which was sort of around the young socialists and other left-wing people in the Labour Party, pe- people who were fighting against coalition. Hmm. And that, that met, uh, it produced one or two papers, I think. Hmm. It was all um, it tended to be to oriented around Mrs. Guy's restaurant. Guy's restaurant was a restaurant in, on, a, on a first floor opposite in Baggett Street, opposite what is or was a supermarket. And anybody on the left sort of tended to eat there. Um, it was the sort of place where you could, it was a homely sort of place where, you, where the menu would include things like sausages and chips or scrambled egg on toast. <laughs> and it was a sort of place where if you turned up, it wasn't a question of looking for a, a, an empty table. There was bound to be somebody at a table that you knew. Right. So yeah. that was a sort of, that tended to be the sort of place that anybody who was in town or was going to a meeting later on would, would end up there and, uh, in, the, in the evening. It, there was no alcohol. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a place that people went to to get drunk. Right. And it was sort of the advanced place and 
my mother warned me against it because she had heard through the Mother's Union. The Mother's Union is an Anglican um, women's organization. She'd heard through the Mother's Union that there might be drugs in Mrs. Guy's restaurant. But <laughs> I, never saw, I never saw any of them. But, uh, and mind you, uh, if, I wouldn't have recognized the smell of pot if it had been there. Um, anyway, uh, that was the sort of milieu hmm. uh, that we were operating in. And so the Social Slaver Action Group was uh, organizing sort of opposition to coalition. And I'm not sure what we did other than talk about it. I suppose we, were, we issued public statements or something, perhaps. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a sort of um, uh, Russian dolls within Russian dolls. You had uh, the League for Workers' Republic and then wider out the Young Socialists and wider out the Socialist Labour Action Group. Anyway, the, the Labour Party held its, coal, its conference in Cork to decide on coalition. Uh, and the SLAG, Socialist Labour Action Group, uh, anticipated being defeated and had booked a hotel to uh, to meet in after the conference and to um, you know and leaflets to uh, to hand out to people as they left the Labour Party conference, hmm. which didn't didn't happen exactly in the way it was intended. And this actually hasn't been terribly well reported in some of the books about the Labour Party. What happened was that the amendments to the resolution were being, uh, the conference was running out of time. So the chairman ordered that in future, the people would just formally propose their amendments instead of speak to them. Mm. And uh, Pat Carroll, uh, who was, I think, the delegate from Dublin Southeast Constituency Council, decided that he wasn't going to go along with this formality and he withdrew the um, it withdrew his particular amendment. The chairman proceeded to put the amendment, which had not been proposed, to a vote. Now, it's possible that due to the bad acoustics, the chairman hadn't actually heard what he said, but uh, he should have known when the hullabaloo broke out that something peculiar had happened. Anyway, uh, Noel Brown got up and uh, said this has become a farce mm. and proceeded to walk out, though People tried to stop him. Charlie Bird, I remember, was one of the people sitting near him. Various people tried to stop him, but he insisted on walking out. Having him leave meant that a whole lot of other people walked out, which meant that the walkout that had been planned for after the boat actually took place before the boat. (laughs) Uh, So uh, we thought, oh, this is great. Noel Brown is is leaving the Labour Party with us, Mm. and he will now be our leader. Uh, But what didn't happen like that? Uh, Noel Brown made a speech outside the conference saying, um, we have walked out of the conference, but we have not walked out of the Labour Party. So the whole project of trying to form an alternative to the Labour Party with Noel Brown there, included, including Noel Brown, yeah. sort of fell down at that, at that point. Right. But uh, we went ahead with our meeting uh, in a hotel. Mm. I was a chairman of the meeting because uh, I think I was sort of, fairly well known in the Labour Party, but uh, not identified with the LWR, so nobody could say this was just a Trotskyist meeting. Mm. There were two other people who I will mention at this point who actually contested the chair, Peg Popplewell and Vincent McDowell. Mm. Peg Popplewell was a member of the Labour Party in Bray who called herself an anarchist, but was really a libertarian socialist. I think she called herself an anarchist so as not to have to confine herself to any specific doctrine. 
Vince McDowell was uh, a member of the uh, Labour Party who had started off, he came from the North and had started off in the um, Socialist Republican Party in Northern Ireland, which was a small group that never got anywhere, I think. Um, anyway, he had, he still had sort of some Republican contact, contests, contacts. And the year before, it might have been two years before, he had got through the Labour Party conference a resolution calling for a Socialist Republican Unity Conference, the sort of vague resolution that nobody really pays a great deal of attention to. But he and the people around, the, as he was involved in the, in the slag and, and so forth, and the people around that used the idea of the Socialist Republican Unity Conference to say, well, here is an alternative to the Labour Party. So the meeting in the hotel in Cork called a Socialist Republican Unity Conference for a couple of months in the future. <laughs> I think Peg Popplewell and Vince McDowell were really serious about bringing everybody together. At this point, Sinn Féin had split, so it was the provisionals as well as the officials that needed to be brought into unity, which was rather, probably rather a tall order. <laughs> anyway, the, the, the Young Socialist idea was more forming a a new party to the left of the Labour Party. Mm. And the idea was that this would be formed at this uh, meeting after a couple of months. Mm. So that meeting was held in uh, the rather peculiar place of the opposite. It was opposite the RDS in Balls Bridge. It was a, uh, a, a, some sort of ring for showing horses or bulls or something. I can't remember what, what it was there for. Vincent had some sort of contact in the RTS that, that got the premises. So that was, called, that was called and that set up a socialist labor alliance. The idea in the Young Socialists had been that, this, that actually one would form a party at that stage. Mm. Paddy Healy, who was the leading knight in the, in the LWR, was the person who was supposed to propose that, uh, but he, he didn't. And afterwards, said he had lost his nerve because there was because of the small attendance. Uh, I suppose there were 150 or 200 people there. I suspect that the LWR actually felt that it was the wrong time to leave the Labour Party, and that this idea of forming a new party around Old Brown had not actually come off. But they didn't actually share that view with anybody or with anybody outside their own walls, so to speak. Mm. So that wasn't proposed. And Paddy Healy happened to be a member of the Administrative Council of the Labour Party, which was the what the National Executive was called at the time. And rather than leave the Labour Party, he insisted that he wanted to stay in. Uh, so they had to expel him. So that led to a rather a difficult period where... Um, you know, those of us who were in the Labour Party weren't actually being called on to leave the Labour Party. I remember at the next Labour Party conference, because the expulsion hadn't actually happened at this stage, mm. I remember handing out leaflets at the next Labour Party conference, calling on people to resign from the Labour Party if Paddy Healy was expelled. Huh. Um, anyway, it wasn't the best way of organising things. Uh, I myself ended up being expelled when the Labour Party in County Wicklow actually got round to saying, well, this fellow was in the Socialist Labour Party alliance. Uh, it's been banned as an organisation. You have to get rid of him somehow or other. So I eventually got thrown out. Not that I had any wish to, to, to stay, but that was the way things were developing. 
mm. uh, the, the way I sort of was maneuvered into saying that I didn't want to leave when in fact I had no interest in staying in it. Mm. Right. Anyway, the Social Stable Alliance was then in being and there was, a, there was a, you know, People's Democracy had attended that meeting in, in March, I think it was, um, and had people on the executive, but they had no intention of forming uh, a party, where, where as a lot of other people would have liked to form a party. But the Social Slave Alliance really, we held a lot of meetings, partly to build the alliance, you know, we'd hold meetings in various towns around the country. And also this was the time of internment, so we held a lot of anti-internment meetings and rallies and things uh, around the country. Peg Popplewell, who was the secretary of the Social Slave Alliance, I met her, mentioned her. Mm-hmm. She was sort of organized and worked closely with the People's Democracy in particular in organizing those meetings. And People's Democracy at one stage even formed a branch in Dublin, mm. which was largely, I think, composed of members of the Finton Lawler branch of the Labour Party. The Finton Lawler branch, if I remember the name rightly, organized in the North wall east wall area mm. and they were sort of there were two varieties of people in them there were the the sort of communist party sympathizers shall we say such as john swift who had no intention of leaving leaving the labor party and there were the people who were more oriented towards people's democracy or something like that they hadn't actually been terribly active in the socialist labor alliance Anyway, what, the SLA was the blanket organization under which the Socialist Workers' Movement got formed and uh, around about the same time, the Revolutionary Marxist Group. It, organized, it allowed people to, to stay together and keep in contact with each other. So you had the Dublin Young Socialists split, the Galway Young Socialists went to the Socialist Workers' Movement, the... I think there was somewhere else went to the went to the revolutionary Marxist group. Uh, the Cork Young Socialists largely went over to the BNICO, yeah. British and Irish Communist Organisation, who were advocating the two nations theory, which was a matter for discussion at the time because you know how do you react to the situation in the north? And they come up, came up with the two nations theory, mm-hmm. and the League for Workers Republic came up with the two nationalities theory which was much of the same thing, except that it said that the Northern Protestants weren't really a nation, but the, uh, a nationality which might at one stage have become a nation if it had gone in that direction. Right. Anyway, this was the sort of thing that was being discussed on the left and which divided the left at that mm. time. And you went with the SWM then? Yes, We've been holding meetings um, in Ken Quinn's house. Ken Quinn became the first national secretary of the SWM. Mm. And we've been holding meetings to get a platform together. I was initially invited under the guise of forming a, a state capitalist faction in the Socialist Labour Alliance. Right. But it turned into, you know, it was clear that it was a, an organisation. We worked our way through a clear manifesto or mm. uh, set of principles mm and uh, only started publishing the paper after that was decided. Mm. And we were joined, that group in Dublin, which largely came from the Fintan Lawler branch of the Labour Party, and I was joined by the Galway Young Socialists and the Waterford Socialist Movement, who had been the Waterford Young Socialists, 
and that it was a you know it was a it was started as a fairly working class organization the i mean the waterbed socialist movement was almost entirely working class the mm. dublin young social dublin swm uh were predominantly working class mm. and that was one of the things that appealed to me apart from the theory of state capitalism the marxism that i was familiar with was you had marxism was that the working class formed its party organized a revolution and and state power uh, and created a socialist society and that it was like straight down straight down the middle marxism to me mm. uh, as opposed to the socialism being formed by an outside army as it happened in eastern europe mm. or a peasant army as it happened in china or a guerrilla army as it happened in cuba or student vanguard which was also one of the air things being talked about in the trotskyist movement at the time that student vanguard could somehow or other start the movement towards socialism and, and that the students were therefore key so to my mind the swm were the people who were who were marxist in in the sense that, that was what marxism was about the work, mm. working class movement and that was i think what attracted me to them rather than trotskyism as such right uh, i mean once i was in of course you got trotskyist education and discussion and so forth and mm. uh it was easy to fall into the pattern of you regarding yourself as a marxist or even a marxist leninist mm. um i had previously you know i had previously sort of mentally described myself as a menshevik and mm. um, menshevik to me, Mensheviks, the Mensheviks, of course, ended up forming a coalition government at the time of the Russian Revolution. But before that, the point of, of view of the Mensheviks was you can't build socialism in a peasant country. You have to have a socialist, a capitalist republic first. Mm. Uh, and I was rather sympathetic towards that idea that 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 was why everything had gone wrong in Russia. uh but of course that wasn't relevant to ireland uh you know ireland wasn't a peasant country that by this point so it didn't have to it didn't preclude me from being a marxist leninist in irish circumstances yeah. yeah and and i should ask just by the way in terms of the relationship with the uk and the swp yeah international socialist swp when it was established in ireland and in and in dublin obviously as well but um was that relationship very what was the nature of the relationship would you say it was a relationship which on the face of it was one of friendship mm. and international solidarity and so on mm. but um there was more to it than that because there were a couple of people who had been in the international socialists mm. and uh you know they were the people who were in telephone contact and would introduce ideas right. and would uh say well so and so is a bit off from the international socialists is available to address mm. a public meeting or to come to a conference or mm. this sort of thing so they had a, they had an a line in to it which okay. uh most of us didn't have but were quite willing to go along with because you know we 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 read the swp's uh, paper there was still the international socialists i think at that time mm. uh we read the paper the magazine and uh you know that was where we were taking up politics from to a great degree right. but we were um and also our the swm's paper the worker was printed by the international socialists printing house in the uk uh, yeah what was nominally uh what was supposed to be marginal cost price but in fact 
the the bills uh, tended to be several months in arrears. <laughs> so they were. It was a sort of not quite a subsidy, but but uh, yeah. a very sympathetic financial situation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so in other words, because uh, from what you're describing, it's just and this is pure in aside. It sounds a little bit more of a looser arrangement than London is the centre and Dublin is merely in orbit around it or Ireland is in orbit around it. It sounds like there was a little bit more going on there. It was looser and there wasn't the international that exists at the moment. Um, There is an international, don't ask Mm. me the name of it, but Mm. it's a network or something. That didn't exist. There was a series of fraternal organisations. We regarded ourselves as fraternal organisations and we uh, exchanged papers and so on. Okay. So there were a number of a number of uh, things went on, but it wasn't a, and it certainly wasn't an ideological constraint. Mm. I remember, for example, that the international socialists had the policy of, of uh, critical but unconditional support for the IRA. Yeah. The SWM, in my day, it changed later on, but in in my day, uh, the SWM didn't didn't say didn't had to have that policy because it, we argued uh, the IRA or Sinn Féin is a rival organisation. You don't give support to a rival organisation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we didn't have that line in Ireland, mm-hmm. uh, but we quite understood that that was the line that they had in England. Okay, uh, and there was no, there was no effort to, to uh, influence us against that, I think. Around that period, it was normal for one of somebody from the, SWM to go over to the IS uh, conference in London. So mm. I was the delegate on one occasion and we had a sort of meeting of fraternal delegates as part of that weekend. And I think I did not impress Tony Cliff right. because uh, after that, I remember we had a discussion about probationary membership. In the SWM, we had a six month probationary membership before people were allowed to vote. Mm. And Tony Cliff thought this was a terrible idea, very unwelcoming. It probably would have been an unwelcoming idea in IS, where you'd have hundreds of members, maybe they had thousands at this point, Mm. um, and any new members would be sort of drowned. Mm. But in Irish circumstances, uh, uh, half a dozen new members would entirely change the composition of, of of the national conference. I mean, the SWM had what I suppose 40 or so members. Right. So anyway, this didn't, this, what followed this was a campaign against comitetniks. Comitetnik means committee man. Right. And this campaign, some, somehow or other, it came over from England and was, you know, the, the SWM was sort of told by a visiting speaker that really things like probationary membership were only suitable for committee men and, Right. The committee men were holding back the organization because the working class was now ready to be talked to about revolutionary socialism. This was 1974, 75. We never actually saw this, this surge of revolutionary yes, forever. Um, so um, anyway, as part of this campaign, they put through a constitutional amendment. I was the treasurer. I'd been elected as treasurer of the SWM. That was sort of my leadership, how I got an entry sort into the leadership. Right. Uh, but they put through a constitutional amendment that in future the treasurer would be appointed by the committee. So this was a means, I didn't realize it until afterwards, but it was a means of getting me off the committee. But 
after after a while they had to bring me back again because the, <laughs> the paper was in the paper wasn't being produced regularly so they said well good believe the chap that will at least bring out the paper regularly so i became the editor of the paper at that point right. okay. uh, editing the paper i mean you know the articles were actually commissioned by the standing committee or some some such body which acted as an editorial board mm. so i wasn't actually guiding the committee i the, the content of the paper very much i was i was making sure that you know that the copy got typeset and right attached to the printer and so forth right you're more production manager effectively <laughs> effectively yes yes okay. so uh I, I, I layout was something that i never ma- managed to get very very far into but i had a good layout it looks it, it looks fantastic it's, i mean it has to be said it still looks fantastic it still really holds up i think <laughs> I'd never really reconciled myself to being a member of a small revolutionary group. Hmm. And so at the, at one stage, there was a project to join the, the IRSP, which hmm. when it's formed, when it was formed, included Bernard Devlin, Eamon McCann, a whole lot of left-wingers. Hmm. That was what was interesting us. Uh, but once they were out, obviously, that was all. Yeah. Probably yeah. would have been let in anyway. Yeah. But then the Socialist Labour Party came along. Mm. And uh, we went along to the inaugural conference. We hadn't decided what to do about the Socialist Labour Party, but I accepted a nomination to the National Executive. Right. Um, and I, I was duly rewarded with a, with a, a vote of censure from the organisation for accepting, a, accepting nomination for the National Executive without having had permission. It didn't seem to worry the other uh, Trotskyist groups which joined the SLP mm. anyway. We went into the SLP and the SWM dissolved at that stage into mm. the Socialist Workers' Tendency, mm. uh, which was the SWM plus people who hadn't actually, were sort of the periphery but hadn't actually joined. Yeah. Then I became disillusioned with the way in which, as I saw it, the SLP was a uh, something substantial, not just Noel Brown, but a substantial working class base. Mm. And Marx says something about, somewhere about the, uh, you know, the movement of the working class is more important than precisely correct program. Mm. And I felt that the SWT, as it was now, was they were only trying to build themselves as, as a sect. And I left at that point. Okay. And subsequently, you know, people, there was a general sort of various people who had been supporting me in a sort of SLP orientation gradually drifted out of the S. WRT or when it was left the SW, when it left the SLP, it was reformed as the SWM. Yeah. So there was a general move mm-hmm. or, or, or move of several people out. So the SWM people who were involved in Grouton were none of them in the SWM still at that stage. Right. All the majority of the editorial board had been members at one stage. I was just the first of them to have left. So Des Derwin, etc. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Once you'd, I mean, the SLP foundered yeah. within. 48 months i guess would that be about right? no no not that lot not that we were uh, still going because i stayed in the slp i became general secretary of the slp right. uh and um it was still going sort of in 1980 uh, was well, 82 i think was it the really? 81 82 the year when there were the two years and there were several elections one after the mm. other mm. um but mm-hmm. we kept going um 
but Noel Brown was always sort of very, very semi-detached position yeah. from the SLP. Mm. And he, um, you know, uh, I think he eventually decided not to stand again. Anyway, there was there were local elections around that time. No, the local elections, sorry, were, were in 69. Was that Duane 69 or 79? 79. 79, yeah. And uh, the SLP got a quota in somewhere in the Artane constituency, but by putting up four candidates, mm. didn't, get any, didn't get anybody elected. Mm. So without Noel Brown and without uh, councillors, because our one councillor, Billy Keegan, had been defeated, I think. Mm. There wasn't much point, really. I advocated that the SOP should just dissolve into the movements, which was a phrase going around at the time. It had been used in Italy with, I think, Lotta Continua, mm. dissolved into the movements. And that wasn't accepted immediately, but after a few months, they sort of came around and did it. I don't think we really did dissolve into the movements, um, <laughs> You know, I think most, there were some people probably drifted back to the Labour Party. Mm. Others just came out of politics and didn't get involved in anything very much. Mm. But that was the end of the SLP. And was in the sort of aftermath of that, that the the idea came about of producing Grouton, mm. which went going, kept going for several issues. And that was, okay. it, it included the... Uh, the article that I did on on the, on the family tree I did of the Irish yeah, left, yeah. And um, following up to that, a few years later, I did a bibliography of lesser Irish Marxist movements for the Sayher, the Journal of the Irish Labour History Society. All right, yeah. So that sort of they sort of flowed into each other. That sort of that sort of study was was it a very conscious decision on the part of Gralton to utilize should we say the mode of news magazines i mean i mean it seems to me it looks like a real effort to produce something that's you know it reminds me of this week or i guess even hibernia to a certain extent but more like this week and that sort of news magazine high production values and so forth i mean yeah that was very much the idea to to have something that could be sold on the shelves that wouldn't be sold by people going around the pubs uh, as, as as socialist papers tended to be yeah. um, and that could sort of stand for itself and would sort of have a, a line of interest, a not exactly a, a periphery, but would appeal to people who were interested in that sort of thing and were sort of looking around for something to, to do. Am I right in saying that Grattan was was trying to take quite a broad left view? Yes, point, yes. Anyway. That would, yeah, it was deliberately trying to to appeal to a, a broad left audience. And and the timeline itself, I mean, what triggered the th- what was what triggered the impulse on your part to set down a timeline? I think it was simply that this was these this information was quite well known to the editors, but we felt it wasn't well known to the readers, yeah. who were probably the type of reader that we were aiming at. Uh, was probably baffled by mention of, of, of small left-wing organisations that had no idea which one was which. And I think we felt that they would be interested in that. And we, we sort of knew a lot. I mean, I can't remember how much research I did. I remember Alan Makshimon uh, helping me with the anarchist uh, area, but I don't remember actually asking other... I don't remember what help I got with other areas. I think I knew... I just knew a lot having read the papers, you know, the way people on the left 
you read each other's papers mm. and make discover what's going on that way. And was it a, a, a long-term painstaking? Because it was all done by hands, obviously. And did it take a long time of research? I mean, in terms of putting it together, collating yeah, it together? Yeah, I, I suppose it took a few months. I can't remember. You, you uh, didn't have the advantage that um, we had on the website of being able to go back to the digital drawing board and <laughs> move things around as things uh, updated. No, well... I mean, it was it was like it was it was it was a one-off exercise. Uh, I didn't intend to keep it up updated. It was just sort of mm-hmm. it was for the benefit of of readers who were there in nineteen eighty four. When when was 83, it? Eighty three. Yes. And there's some there's some fantastic, um, uh, which Angus carried on, but I mean some of the ideas in terms of visually representing the linkages between parties and groups and so forth, it, yes. you know, yeah. which completely holds up. I mean, it's sort of like, there's just an awful lot of thought has gone into this and into the, um, the, the layout of it. I'm looking at it now. And of course people yeah. will be able to see it online yeah. uh, listening to this, but was there anything that caused you any particular problems or is there any area which was you mentioned there Alan McSimone was involved on the anarchist side with you, but was that an area which maybe you hadn't had the same sort of uh, uh, in public exposure to? Or? That was it, yes. I just hadn't hadn't um, come across all of the anarchist groups or they might have been sort of just names to me and, and I didn't know who, didn't know which one related, how they related to each other and whether one was a split or, or, or whatever. I, I think I probably just hadn't been buying anarchist literature the way I had been buying socialist literature. Yeah. yeah. The, the other thing that strikes me is it's amazing as a tree that it, as you get to these lower, the, 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 the period of time, 1983, there seemed to be an awful lot more groups. There was sort of a flourishing during that previous three to five years from 78 onwards yeah. of groups, whereas before that, of course, it's like a pyramid. It goes back to fewer and fewer. Yes. Um, do you have any explanation for that? I mean, why would you say, like, you know, almost from, in fact, actually almost from the 60s onwards, it's as if, ba-dum, there's more and more. Well, I think there are two things that I can think of. One is that our close contacts with England, because people are always going back and forwards and getting involved in a group in England and then bringing that particular ideology uh, back, to, back to Ireland. Mm. And the other was the question of the North, because really the North upset everybody's thinking. Um, and so it wasn't merely a question of the Republican splits. It was also what our attitude should be. Like I mentioned uh, that the SWM in my day uh, did not have the position of critical but unconditional support for the IRA, whereas... Uh, other Trotskyist groups did have that uh, position. Yeah, and and weirdly, there's been another profusion of groups, but I guess that's for a different day's work, to put it mildly. Yeah. So this was in the penultimate issue, I think, of Geralt, and this, I think, came from uh, issue number nine, and then I think there was a tenth issue. What, in a sense, brought Geralt into a close? Uh, really, lack of money. Right. It, it was simply not... Not, not a question of not being a profit, but it was so much in debt that we really couldn't couldn't keep it going. We couldn't see where the money was going to come from to print another issue because it was 
commercial, you know, was done by a commercial printer. And then the, a lot of the people who'd been involved in Groughton went on to produce Z magazine, mm -hmm. which was sometime something over Groughton Mark II uh, in a slightly different format. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't get involved in that because I said, you know, this is going to run out of money the same way as Groughton did. There's yeah. no there's no way we can get out of that bind. So after Gralton, what did you do politically? Well, um, Gralton was one of a, a number of sort of minor things. Uh, after the LP collapsed, hmm. uh, I sort of had to look around and, you know, I managed to sort out my sexuality, which was something that I'd been running away from. Right. And I got involved in a number of sort of little things and Grafton was one of them there was uh the Dublin Clean Seas group mm. uh there was Earthwatch which was uh the Earthwatch had originally been friends of the earth and eventually became friends of the earth again but I was only involved in that for a few months I think it sort of had a temporary collapse after which I didn't come back or something like that right then um I got involved in CND at the time that the, because of the uh, American missiles being stationed in Greenham Common, mm. uh, British CND uh, had a, a new burst of life and Irish CND, the same thing happened. Right. And uh, so we had, we had, we had um, you know, the Dublin branch of CND managed to divide itself up geographically and so forth. Mm. But it was fairly short-lived and CND kept itself going, um, but gradually uh, declined. Uh, I, get, I, I, I was elected to the executive committee and sort of gradually, as people dropped out, <laughs> I sort of filled, filled gaps. So I was vice chair at one point and secretary ended up as secretary. And, but that was big. It was kept going on a, on a rather declining uh, basis and mm. you know we got a couple of enthusiastic members and they felt that nobody else was doing any work mm. and uh, you know there had been an office at one point and that was under a community employment scheme and that had to close mm. and so forth so it gradually went into decline and became simply an organization that holds uh, an annual Hiroshima commemoration. Right okay I mean there's still a purpose for it to put it mildly. Oh absolutely yeah Mm -hmm. And and then I got involved in the National Gay Federation, uh, mm. and um, so that was that was sort of a non-political uh, 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 some years of non-political activity until I eventually joined the Green Party in 1990. Mm. Although deeply, deeply politicised, I'd imagine the NLGF would be. As, oh yes, I mean the things moved on. Things yeah. to be to be discussed. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, it was just not a it was not a political organisation as such. Yeah. Course, yeah. Would you've been involved in campaigning on that side as well, or would it have? Well, the NGF by the time I got involved was mm. mainly uh, it had got a community employment scheme to produce uh, gay community news, the paper, right. and was also running the Irish Queer Archive, which has ended up in the National Library. Mm. Uh, and the committee was really running that, and okay. uh, I was treasurer for few years i tend to end up as treasurer because not because i am able to raise money i couldn't i couldn't organize a fundraiser but i can keep it's a paper sufficiently well to produce an income and expenditure account at the end of the year <laughs> yeah that's which is a very useful thing i mean yes it had to be in in uh, 
in the NGF because, I mean, the basically the way the NGF is, the NGF's finances survived was by saying mm-hmm. to the editor, you can't have more pages unless you sell more advertising. <laughs> <laughs> One of the interesting aspects about GCN is it has the word community in its title. Yeah. Such a shame on the left. The concept of community is not something that's shared in quite the same yeah. way. And, and and I mean, this is not in any sense to ignore the fact there's a huge overlap between um, the pr- struggles and the progressive struggles of um, the lesbian and gay communities as well, but it's uh, with the left, but it's this sense of, there's much more of a sense of community there. It's something that the left could learn from, to put it mildly or yes. appropriate. No, I mean, uh, I think the idea of community was, it comes up in the gay movement because in a mm-hmm. sense, particularly in the past, it had to build its own community because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it wasn't a geographical community, uh, but it had to go out and, you know, people had to go and seek each other in order to have any sort of organisation or in order to... Born of necessity. Yes, was born out of necessity, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did you then join the Green Party? I mean, around what period would you have joined the Green Party? It was 1990 that I joined, and right. I had been sort of on the periphery. I'd been to a few public meetings. Hmm. Um, I wasn't terribly impressed. <laughs> you know, uh, they seemed to be very much people with uh, who were excellent in the, on their own subjects, but not hmm. there wasn't much of a political party about it. Hmm. But over that, over the the 80s, the you know, you had the Green Alliance moved in, into being the Green Party, and it adopted a, a policy of, of taking decision by a two-thirds majority, which mm. sounds to people on the left uh, a recipe for inaction. But mm. in fact, before that, if anybody objected, nothing got done. Mm-hmm. So taking decisions by a two-thirds majority was a means of actually getting something done. Mm-hmm. And just it struck me when I was looking at your overall political trajectory. I mean, would you still have considered yourself as a Marxist when you went into the GP or would you be influenced by Marxism? I'd, I, I'd say more of a post-Marxist. Okay. Um, what drove me in the direction of green politics was one of Rudolf Barrow's books. He had several books, and one of them he argues that the sort of contradiction between capitalism and the working class has been overridden by a contradiction between the industrial system and the environment. Yeah. So I took that on board and was of that way of thinking even before I joined the Green Party. And I, I mean, I produced, a, a, I wrote a pamphlet, self-published Colours in the Rainbow. And that was just before I joined the Green Party that mm. I produced that. And that sort of showed my sort of intellectual move, I suppose, yeah. towards green politics. I, I, I still feel that it's not so much a question of, or rather, that it, it's a question of the the, the sort of basic Uh, ecological contradiction has become more urgent than the social contradiction now i would i would believe that that uh you know you can't have an ecological society on a purely capitalist basis Mm -hmm. but how we're actually going to get to that point i don't know i think all we can do is move in that direction Mm. and essentially we have to move if you like on a reformist trajectory that you find where you can reform, where you can move capitalism towards not being such a bad contradiction and how we're actually going to stop capitalism reproducing the bad things 
I don't know, but uh, I think the, the important thing is to sort of move in that direction as far as we can. You ran uh, as a candidate for the Green Party a number of times in the 90s. Was it 94, the first time you were a candidate for the party? Yes, that was, uh, that was the 1994 by-election. Yeah. What actually happened was um, the Green Party, particularly in our constituency, was very small. And the, when the candidate who stood at the previous election uh, stood down, uh, I sort of looked around the room and, uh, you know, there was... Uh, I said to myself, they're going to ask me because uh, I couldn't see who in the room uh, was going to be the candidate. And the Green Party is very... It tends to be very parochial in that people look in their own constituency very much for who is going to be the candidate and they don't sort of think of uh, very much about importing candidates. Mm-hmm although it does happen sometimes. So I looked around the room and said they're going to ask me. And, um, well, I, the first thing was I cleared it with my partner, now my husband, uh, that that would be tolerant. Because, I mean, standing as a green, standing as a, a gay person standing as a candidate was something that nobody was really familiar with. So uh, I needed to be very satisfied that uh, the Green Party was going to stand by me and wasn't going to run scared if it blew up. In fact, it was it 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 it, it was very peaceable. I mean, people may have been saying things behind my back that never got back to me, but uh, I, it was not something that that caused uh, problems in the campaign. But I needed to be sure that the Green Party was serious about this. Yeah. And in fact, we were looking around for another. We had been we had what other candidate in mind because. Uh, Kieran Koff at that time was councillor for part of the constituency, so we had uh, asked him and he turned it down. So eventually I emerged as the candidate. <laughs> and then having been the candidate, uh, I was, uh, you know, uh, it was obvious that I should run for the next um, general election and for a subsequent by-election because we had two by-elections in Dublin South Central. 99 was the second one, I think, yes. Did you enjoy the process of campaigning? Um, Yes and no. I found it much much easier to canvass for myself than for somebody else Hmm. because I could sell myself and I could never know what to say about other people. (laughs) Um, But um, the actual organising, I'm organising a campaign and you know, I had some help in organising. It wasn't entirely up to me, but the organisational aspects of it were not were not uh, done the best way they they could. And one of the, my problems as an organiser is that I hate actually asking people to do things. So I, I, I sort of wait for volunteers to come along. So I wasn't the best organiser, and I really wasn't the best candidate because uh, you know you need to be very interested in people and you sort of man of the people sort of thing. Mm. which doesn't really come naturally to me. But anyway, I mean, you know, I managed to bring it off. Uh, mm. That's as much as <laughs> can be said. But I wasn't getting anywhere. You know, my if you want to build up a political profile, you know, your percentage vote needs to go up every election. And if mm. that wasn't happening, it was yo-yoing around the place. Okay. Mm. Did you find that people responded to the Green Party then as as seeing them as a bit single issue on the environmental matter? Or cause I, I noticed from your statement from the 99 by-election, which I think is on uh, on a website online still, that 
the sort of emphasis on anti-corruption, on Irish neutrality. I'm not sure it even states the environmental policy necessarily. Yeah, um, well, I sort of, I, I did tend to feel that, you know, if you're standing for the Green Party, well, people know you're in favour of the environment and protecting the environment and so on. Yeah. So you need to actually be saying something else. Uh, and it still happens, people say, oh, you've got no policies on anything other than in the environment. It's not true, but uh, nobody ever bothers to read them or, or, you know, newspapers don't draw attention to them or television doesn't mention them. So, you know, you have to sort of say something about things other than the environment. Mm. Well, that was the way I felt anyway. Mm. You obviously didn't run again after that. Did you have any inclination to, or are you happy you'd done your... I mean, in a sense, because well, you're one of those who served the time doing well, that, getting the Green vote built. What actually happened was that I was defeated as a, at a selection convention. Okay. Um, but having been defeated, I said, well, I am not going, you know, because I were subsequent elections that I could have got a nomination if I wanted. But I said, no, I'm, I'm really, you know, because uh, by 1999, what, what age was I in 99? I was, I was 55, was it? Mm. It's a bit sort of late, you know, once you have rake, it's a bit start. It's a bit much to start having a political career at that age. I think, mm. Mm. or maybe it was just my own feeling yeah. that I was a bit a bit tired of doing that type of work, and I I really prefer to go yeah. back to doing the sort of backroom sort of work mm-hmm. that I'd been that I'd been doing. Because inside the Green Party, um, you're a collective chair of the Green Party, uh, former policy convener, so you. You've been obviously active across a whole range of areas inside the GP. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also what I've tended to do recently is a lot of stuff to do with the constitution and rules. Mm. Uh, I just have that the sort of mind that can work in that area, although I've no legal training. So you're still obviously reasonably active in terms of politically. Yes, yeah. Off and on. Um, I mean, you know, there are there are there are times that I do really very little, but I, I go to meetings. And now that we have uh, meetings on, on Zoom, we have, I, I go to some Zoom meetings and so forth. It's, no. it's a different era. Do you think, I'm just thinking back, and I, in a sense, this is completely off topic, but I do wonder how Irish political life would have gone if everything was on Zoom 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. <laughs> it would have been very strange. Very strange, yeah. The Because you were describing there about the, the restaurants on Baggett Street. And I was thinking, I'm just thinking that was such a different sort of life in terms yes. of, and as you say, a milieu. It was a, it was a left, quite a far left milieu as well. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. People knew each other and... and yeah. uh, even if they weren't uh, always in the same organisation, they, they, they'd be talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was, you know, I think the, 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 it wasn't a sectarian, I think. Mm-hmm. It certainly sounds from what you're saying about the IS and, and the SWM, things were, yeah, a, a different sort of environment. I guess possibly you drew, you drew attention to this in relation to the centrality of the conflict, in a sense, on the island. Things changed, I guess, in the 70s and then into the 80s and so forth. Yeah. That's, I I think, thank you so much. I mean, this has been a fantastic uh, overview of so many different aspects of Irish political life. And uh, uh, it really is, it's it's very illuminating. Yeah. Well, thank you for... Thank you, John. Thanks a million. (laughs) 